Friday morning, and Steve Lang from Rochester Magazine joins us. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. So I always look forward to talking to you this time of the year because we get to talk about the Rochies. <laughs> or or my, strange enough, every time I see that word, I want to say Rochies, but it's Rochies <laughs> for some reason. Well, but, it can be that as well at times. Yeah, well, it, it seems to be a theme among many of the criminals that somehow that uh, there's an element involved of chemical <laughs> substances. What we're talking about is... But, some of the stranger and kind of quirky or even funny things that have happened. Yeah, it's all right. Around here. Back at the strangest, uh, you know, best slash worst slash strangest stories of the past year. And I actually was a little bit better this year. And a lot of number of other people were too, as, as a weird story would come across the, you know, the wire, I would get stuff sent to me. So I was really able to Usually at the end of the year, I got to go back and kind of trudge through a lot of news sources and see what I can find. But I had a, there was a lot of good stuff this year. I think people were were coming off the pandemic and ready to get out and do some yeah. stuff they hadn't gotten to do before. Everybody has their favorites, and I don't even know where to start with mine. But it, maybe it is just because I have a personal connection to it in multiple ways. Uh, the woman with a bullhorn driving through the cement when they were doing Broadway in 7th. You know, and I'm always a little leery because sometimes it's, you know, the incidents represent something deeper, but this is someone with a long history of this kind of thing. So it was a, a woman who was, this was back in May, she was driving around Rochester. It's a 53-year-old woman who's pretty well known, I think, to law enforcement authorities for doing this kind of thing and just you know, yelling at different people, uh, spreading the word of God in between, screaming at people. And when the officers came, um, you know, she was berating them over the bullhorn. And then she took off at a high rate of speed. And the next thing you knew, she was on 7th Street Northeast driving through 150 feet of freshly poured, still wet concrete. And there's just a phenomenal photo of this of this car just absolutely buried in concrete. So she... You know, drove around for a while yelling at people. Then the cops came. She screamed at them, sped away, and ended up not too far from there coming to rest in some freshly poured concrete. And she had been doing this for several days beforehand. I know that for a fact because multiple members of my family were yelled at by this woman with a bullhorn. And they would go, do you know anything about this lady on Broadway with a bullhorn? I'm like, no, what are you talking about? And uh, the other connection, well, one of them, my son driving the UPS truck, that's on his route. So he he was berated by her multiple times. Apparently, she would chase his UPS truck. But the other connection is, when he's not driving the UPS truck, that's the exact model and color of the car he drives. <laughs> really? Okay. So yeah. I saw that photo. I go, oh no, what did he do? Yeah. So it's just it's one of those that you know I like a lot of us we kind of love our comeuppance stories. So for her to start getting pulled over to berate the cop and was yelling at him, I guess for quite a while, and then you know, decided to try to speed away and, and get away and put herself into this wet concrete. So I love, yeah, I love the story things too. The, the, just, there are a few that just tell a story in such, you know, a small space. The saddest, you know, Facebook marketplace ad was she said no engagement ring for sale. I mean, that's, that's just, right. It feels like one of those, you know, six word Hemingway story or something. So just uh, there's, and there are a lot of dumb criminal stories. There are a lot of just 
you know, insane things for Rochester, like the um, in December, this was the end of last year, there was a horse running down 2nd Street Southwest with a saddle on that they were looking for the owner of, which would have been, you know, you'd think it'd be pretty easy to find. Um, a lot of the cool stories, like, you know, Michael York, the actor from right. Run and Austin Powers and a well-known stage actor moving here from uh, Hollywood because he wanted to be closer to, uh, to Mayo Clinic. And then you also have some of the stories that seemed cool at the time, like Kanye West, um, was shown at an LA concert wearing Red Wing boots, and everyone was all excited about that. And then, you know, when the not anymore, thing took a turn, <laughs> no one really wants to be involved with that anymore. So, and speaking of that, and I, I had not heard about this until I saw it in the Rachis. I, I had no idea that Mayo had to go to court, Mayo Clinic had to go to court to fight a, a pornographic website. <laughs> And these are beautiful. So someone had opened a pornographic website that, you know, directly referenced Mayo's name or Mayo believed it did. It was actually called Mayo Porno. And so for me, the beauty of these is I did track down like the Mayo, you know, court case. So you're reading the transcripts from the, you know, Mayo's complaint about it. And it's all, you know, this really technical speak trying to get to the point across that we don't want to be aligned with this, you know, site that takes you to some some you know pretty inappropriate stuff and the fact that the guy thought he could get away with it and was up trying to fight mayo with this and it didn't last long that was taken down pretty quickly but uh um yeah just a lot of tangential things too that that tie to rochester i okay, love but, but backing up to the mayo clinic story <laughs> if you you know, a lot of these Rachi stories, I try to put myself in the position of the person who's the subject of the story. And what was going through their mind? What would be what would be somebody doing a Google search looking for pornography? Why would they remotely type in mail? I mean, I don't get that part at all. I think it goes the other way, right? I think the, and I'm going to tell you a horrible story that happened to me, but so I think the other thing is they're trying, the porn sites are trying to oh, so you, tap into someone who's searching for Mayo, and then they come across this, say, oh, I'll check this out. Oh, it's my an first, accidental connection, got it. You know, when you, my first week at the Post Bulletin, and this was 2000, so you remember what kind of computer and and when inappropriate things would pop up on your computer, it would be really tough to get rid of. There'd be a bunch of windows, right, popping up. <laughs> I was doing a search for the White House, and I swear I typed whitehouse.com or something. It was whitehouse.gov. And at that time, there had been a takeover of a bunch of websites for porn sites, and this was one of them. So it was my first week at the PB. My big screen computer has its back to everyone in the office. And as soon as I typed this website, my computer is just inundated with dozens of windows popping up with the most inappropriate content imaginable. <laughs> Trying to close them as fast as you can. And you can't close on them quicker, quick enough. And I finally just stopped and I walked into my boss's office. <laughs> his windowed office had his back. You know, he could see my screen. And I just said, look, here's what just happened, man. You got to call IT because this is not me on week one or any week. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's the other way around. I think they're trying to trick you into doing a normal search, seeing something that, you know, will apparently entice you to click it on their website. Oh, my gosh. And there's the other guy. I know we can't cover all these, and I don't want to, but um, who was living with a woman and claimed to be a brain surgeon and would come home every day dressed in scrubs? <laughs> what? 
This one was awesome. So this was one of the first ones I got. Someone sent me for the year, and I thought, oh, man, this is going to be a good year. So, yeah, in February, <laughs> this, uh, um, a pol- yeah, police issued a warrant for a 36-year-old Rochester man. He had racked up 27 grand of credit card debt in cards he'd opened in his girlfriend's name. And they'd been living together, and he, she told him he claimed to be a brain surgeon. Yeah, he'd come home every day with uh, scrubs and a stethoscope around his neck, which is just awesome, right? I mean, to get dressed up in scrubs and a stethoscope to come home. And then, then finally, she became suspicious. Finally. And, and I think there were a few other incidents. No, we can't get everything in here, but I think she'd met some other doctor at some point. She'd mentioned her boyfriend, and they were like, I have no idea who this is. It was someone like in the same department. <laughs> and then she did a... Uh, Google search and found out his name was fictitious, but the fact that the guy came home and put scrubs and a stethoscope on every day is awesome. And that was here in Rochester. Yeah, that was here in Rochester. Yeah, that was the, Rochester. The, RPD. As you know, big and, as... And you feel so sorry for the people that get scammed because this woman clearly believed this is what her boyfriend did and, you know, you know she's out 27 grand, however that works, but... Uh, but the fact that, that he went to the links of, of wearing a st- stethoscope and medical scrubs was pretty impressive. And as, you know, as big as the Mayo Clinic is, with tens of thousands of employees, it's still a pretty close-knit community as far as the physicians are concerned. They all know who, they pretty much know most of them. Especially, guess, if, you, like, especially we, if you're up into the brain surgeon level. I guess his scam, right, was, hey, you can lend me all this money. I clearly have a lot of money because sure. we're in a stethoscope. Surgery. I'm a rocket scientist. All yes. right. He's not a rocket scientist. All right. We'll have to take a break. We're talking with Steve Lang, Rochester Magazine Today on Rochester Today. News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. The There's always time for the drive. Yeah, I'm Andy Brownell, News Talk 1340, KROC AM. And 96.9 FM with Steve Lang, Rochester Magazine. Once a month, we like to get together and talk about what's going on with the magazine. Gosh, how long are we? 20-some years? Early 2000s, wasn't it? Yeah, so I moved here in April of 2000, and we started right pretty quickly, like maybe six months or a year after. Right, because I remember one of the first issues was... Did you even have kids? When Hadley was one and a half when we moved here. So we okay. thought we'd be here for, you know, we thought we'd move back to Michigan before she started school and 20 <laughs> years and two more kids later, we're still here. But uh, um, yeah, Hadley was just a little kid. When we first moved out here and now she's you know, 24. But yeah, we, uh, I started doing the radio show. You guys, uh, honestly, someone was asking me about it last night and talking about how the magazine has grown. And I said, you know, there were a few people that really helped me out when we when I first got here, and you know, you and Tracy were definitely, um, um, you know, Kevin Lund with story ideas, and people like John Creasel, and um, you know, advertisers like Joan from Tangerine. I mean, I think back on that, and you know, it was just me back in the day, and and so many people that that saw it as something new and different to Rochester, and and you and Tracy were were two of the best. You know, we were really. We really realized it was good that to promote each other back then, you know. Yeah, it was a blast. Other businesses weren't doing that, you know. It's kind of an all boats must rise thing, and it was a lot of fun. So, still has, still is, still is. Um, you have a great article this month about the well, not just canines, but 
um, the two newest, well, I don't even know the two newest, but I, I, the Rochester Police Department now has bomb-sniffing dogs. And I was fascinated with the people who, not only the canines and the training they go through, but the people who take on the role of being the handlers for these dogs for law enforcement. It's pretty cool. So the canine unit for Rochester Police Department, and it's kind of a combo with Olmstead County as well, includes a number of dogs. I think there's a dozen or more that do a number of different things, mostly drug detection. There's only two Rochester police dogs who are bomb sniffing only. So they're single purpose dog, they're bomb sniffing dogs. That's all they do. They don't do the drug sniffing. They don't do really anything else. And so I got to go and spend an afternoon with them at the old IBM building doing some, they were doing some training with explosives in backpacks, right? Set around the IBM building in some empty hallways. And it was really cool. So you're right that they're pretty new. Like they've only had three or four bomb sniffing dogs in the history of RPD. And that didn't start that long ago. And actually bomb sniffing dogs, generally um, the number of those teams increased exponentially after 9-11, right? So that was when everything kind of took off. But I got to spend the day with uh, Louis, who's a seven-year-old German Shepherd, Belgian Malinois mix, and Officer McCaffrey. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was fascinating because these dogs are just amazing, you know, and they're trained on a number of different scents. And there's really only a handful of base scents that make up almost all of explosives you'd expect people to use right in Rochester if they were going to come here. So... So it's just a really fascinating training process. And to see these two dogs, you know, acknowledge and, you know, sit down or lay down or whatever their their uh, cue is, these explosives that you can't smell or see or it's just, it's it was amazing. So do they train these dogs the same way? I mean, do you train a dog to shake, let's say. Is it the same basic reward for performing the task thing here's your little treat or i yep and that starts at a really early age when they bring these dogs over usually from um there are a few really well-known breeders in uh, eastern europe that do this kind of thing they'll often buy the dogs from there and yeah they're just training them from day one there's some pretty standard training systems that are uh utilized across the u.s there's some federal programs you can go through and yep, they're training them. So, and what they like, they like. So, if the dog sniffs um, TNT when it's being trained, and it and it recognizes that someone should sniff and sit down on, it might get a food treat. Or in in Louis's case, this guy just loves to play with a tennis ball. So his treat for finding drugs, or I mean, in his case, bombs, is getting to play with his tennis ball on a stick for a while. And Louis's pretty amazing story because. He was part of the Mall of America bomb sniffing team. So Mall of America has one of the biggest dog uh, patrol teams in the nation. And they had a number of uh, bomb sniffing dogs, more than they realized they needed. They kind of ramped up after 9-11. And then they sold some of those off. And Louie was one that was bought by RPD. And for the person who's scoffing at the need for these bomb sniffing dogs specifically, just think how often you have a VIP visitor to this community and some venue has to be searched and 
how often our officers have responded over the past several years to threats at schools or other facilities. I bet these dogs immediately are set loose and, wherever and the, it is to do their thing. And the beauty of it is, is these dogs have never found a serious explosive in Rochester. There have been a few cases of things like at the FMC where they were brought in and some of those may be working on some explosive. They are very good at tracking down discarded fired weapons or shell casings. But a big part of these two bomb sniffing dogs is uh, deterrence and is, like you said, clearing bomb situations. So one of the things they do a lot of is when there's a, a dignitary coming into town, they are sniffing the people who are going to get a chance to be near that dignitary. You know, we have presidents and world leaders here on a regular basis. So they are called to different areas all across southern Minnesota for this kind of thing. And yep, for school, you know, if there's a school bomb threat, they're called in and, and they're one of the first teams to clear things. So it was pretty interesting to me and kind of heartening to me how little they actually are required to determine there's a bomb versus how much they're required to be a deterrent for someone who might consider that. Yeah, because you know that that's place for whatever, whatever is you're thinking of doing, if you're one of the bad people, there's a good chance one of these dogs is going to be deployed before you have a chance to do it. The other aspect of the story, though, and I, I don't know how much you delved into it, but the handlers for these dogs, the commitment that they have to make, I mean, a dog's with you for life, the life of the dog. So Officer Shannon McCafferty is Louie's handler, and they're a team, right? So they drive together all day long. They work together all day long. Yeah. She says he's the best partner she could imagine. You know, she doesn't, doesn't say anything. He's, you know, pretty easy to get along with. So, yep, she has a couple other dogs. So when she takes Louie home, you know, he can't wait to – he's off the clock as well. He's playing with other dogs and living with her. And um, to a person, the canine handler's – become you know so attached to their dog because they're spending every hour of the working day with them and then they're going home with them i mean these people are spending 24 7 oftentimes with these these animals so yep so when louis retires when sarge the other um canine bomb sniffing dog explosive detection dog retires they'll live with their handlers i mean they'll stay with them for life and it's just really a cool bond they have and it makes me feel guilty i think i have a pretty intelligent dog but and i imagine the dog could be trained to do all sorts of fantastic things and if i had the time i'd love to do it but every time i look at one of these canine dogs and see what they're capable of and the the level of discipline that they have while they're on duty it's it's pretty amazing i'm impressed to see the dog sniff out one of the, I think in this case he had like C4 and TNT and ammonium nitrate in the in the backpacks, and you know these are there's nine powder nine compounds basically that make up almost all of the explosive devices used today. So they're really um, locked in on these nine compounds. It's something that they're you know built to detect or trained to detect from day one. To see them find that in a whole row of backpacks, and then, you know, for all of them, their cue is to usually lay down next to it or maybe bark or signal in some way. You don't have, obviously want them clawing at something that could blow up and kill you both. I mean, 
it was, it's amazing. I mean, one command sets them loose on the idea of finding one of these nine compounds to smell and then to find that compound, smell it, and then to lay down to signal is, you know, in, in a matter of seconds is hard to get your head around. And the fact that they're trained even to do things like smell at the bottom of a suitcase or a backpack or underneath a pallet because that's where the heavier odors will lie to smell around the seams of a backpack because that's where you're more likely to smell it. I mean, it, you know, I'm always, I always think dogs and most animals are underrated when it comes to their intelligence. And you watch something like this and you think, you know, you and I couldn't do it. <laughs> I can barely get my dog to shake. Yes. Uh, ours is, my daughter Emma's trained our, our youngest, or well, now our only dog, uh, rescue. We got a couple of years ago during the pandemic and she is amazing. So just some minimal training there. I mean, Emma can just give hand signals from 30 feet away and Finch will lay down or roll over or he, you know, it's, it's amazing to see how much they can learn. All right. Finch's next career, right? Yeah, you can try to see her. Law enforcement. Career. Yeah, I doubt that. She's 13 pounds. We'll take a break for news and be back in a moment with more uh, with Steve Lang, Rochester Magazine. It's Rochester Today, News Talk 1340, KROC, AM and 96.9 FM. With us today. With Steve Lang, Rochester Magazine. I'm Andy Brownell, News Talk 1340, KROC, AM and 96.9 FM. Uh, your, your history piece in this month's Rochester Magazine is a little bit different than most. It's on professional wrestling. And I've lived long enough, and I've lived in this town long enough to remember the days when pro wrestling and semi-pro wrestling was the cat's meow as far as bringing in people to the Mayo Civic Center and the auditorium, the old auditorium. Uh, they used to pack them in for those Saturday night wrestling matches, and people would come from all over southeastern Minnesota, and some of the biggest names in wrestling were here. If <laughs> You're covering... An aspect of it I I was totally unaware of. One way I can tell you have been here a long time or around a long time is that you use the word cat's meow, the phrase cat's meow. <laughs> so that was Yeah, so I love these and you I know you do too, these historical events that happen at the Civic Center, especially the events that are kind of in a context that maybe wouldn't exist today or at least not in this form. So Actually, I was just doing some work with the Civic Center on something else, and I was looking through the timeline, and, you know, you got the um, uh, Joe Lewis fighting Orlin Ott back in the 40s, and you have 4,000 people turn out for that boxing match, or, you know, the Ice Follies back when they used to have the Ice Rink at the Civic Center, which was probably during your time. I think that closed, like, in 1980. Yeah, they had the ice on the auditorium all winter, yeah. So this one was a... Big, a really well attended and big professional wrestling match in 1950. And the real draw for this match was that it featured two of the top women wrestlers of the day, which was, you know, a little bit of a novelty going into the 30s and 40s and then really started to take off in the early 50s. So Mildred Burke versus Nell, the Southern Belle Stewart. <laughs> the Southern Belle. And these were two women that had a real. Um, rivalry in and out of the ring. <clears throat> One had uh, slept with the other's husband. I mean, there was just a lot of stuff going on that was kind of the you know National Enquirer angle of the day as well for people. So, so this was a big deal, and it packed the Civic Center. There were, you know, I say undercard Bronco Nagurski, 
who is a well-known, you know, sports name from the 40s, 50s, fought Abe the Syrian assassin Cachet. And these were, you know, two others with a big rivalry in and out of the ring. So, you know, the idea that this wrestling match um, at the Civic Center was such a big draw, got so much coverage and drew so well. I think they had well into the, you know, 4,000 people at this match. Um, That's crazy when you think about it. And just the, you know, the pictures and the um, posters and, the you know, magazine covers of the era talking about this. It was a big deal. And, you know, it's just one of those moments in time where you look at it and think, man, this was 1950 Rochester. And, you know, your parents or grandparents or whatever were probably, you know, considering or going to this thing. So, um, yeah, Tom Weber, it's another great piece from him on something that, you know, when he first pitched it, I was like, yeah, that sounds okay. It'd be cool to get a little bit. And then he, he wrote it and sent me a longer piece and said, hey, just look at this. I was like, this is a fascinating stuff. I mean, you know, again, it was it was in pro wrestling, kind of the beginning of their heyday, especially for the women pro wrestling and more of the, um, you know, where it was bringing in a lot of those outside stories, which was relatively new for that era. So that was just a really, really cool piece by Tom and just some great photos of these, you know, two women wrestling. So, well, and part of it too is people have a perspective or a uh, a view of what the, that time era was like, and it seems, you know, you got the uh, uh, a more innocent age, uh, a lot more conservative age, and, and you know, uh, you know, if you look back and. And read some of the day-to-day coverage of things that were happening in the world. No, it was uh, there was plenty of uh, let's say racy things happening. You and I have done. I know you're a big history guy, and we do a lot. I've done a lot through the PB archives and just kind of trudging through those for things. You know, back a hundred plus years. For me, I can look at a paper from 100 years ago and see the same kinds. People talk about how much it's changed. It really hasn't. If you look no. back at some of those things from 80, 100, 50, 20 years ago, there are the exact same stories, maybe written a little bit differently, maybe a little bit more subdued or sometimes less. You know, in some of these, like the the writing about the two women and their rivalry was very salacious. It would be even for today, the way it's presented. <laughs> 1950s. So people, like you said, they can talk about how, you know, how clean and pure things were back then. And this was the post-World War II, you know, kind of clean cut era. And, and the stuff written there and the stories, even in the PB and surrounding papers, trying to be salacious about the background of these between these two women is you know it's it's not a far cry from what happens today no the difference i think today is so much of this material content is delivered to your phone or your computer or your tv screen in your home and in uh, my parents age and my grandparents age there was always an area of any town that was dedicated to that level of entertainment, let's say. A um, little bit racier entertainment. <laughs> that existed well until I was in my young adulthood age here in Rochester. I mean, downtown was full of uh, adult entertainment, let's put it that way. Sure. <laughs> 
Yeah, great story by Tom Wepper. He does a great job with these historical pieces and another good one from him. So check that out if you pick up the January few of Rotch Mag. Yeah, it's it's the photos are just just wild when you see the how things were promoted back in the day. I doubt you could promote them that way today without somebody hollering at you pretty loudly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he also did a a nice. It was uh, I'm sure it was Kasky did another one of her random Rochesterites guys, and, and once again, everybody's got a story, right? This was a really cool one. His name's Rob Solom. I think that's how you pronounce it. He's a patient transport at Mayo Clinic and a bellhop at the Hilton Hotel. So he's the guy that's pushing people in their wheelchairs from the Hilton to Mayo or transporting them in whatever way from Hilton to Mayo. And obviously this guy's got a million stories, right? I mean, he's, he's transported so many patients over the years. And, and just, again, someone who found something probably almost by happenstance and realized how much they love this work. I mean, something like dealing with Mayo patients on a daily basis and helping them, you know, get to where they need to be and find their appointments. And I, I just love these things of, of people who have, who found what matters to them and that's what they want to do. And that's what they, you know, that's what they take pleasure and pride in. And this is just a great example of that. And part of his story I thought was, I don't know. Not, I'm sure it's not unique, but just the way he told it is he grew up, I think, with Chicago, yep. in a, ra- a very rough area. Uh, his mother was in not not a great situation with an abusive spouse and hightailed it to Minnesota because they had family there and just, you know, as a child that granted him freedom and and talks about the culture story coming from such a bad situation with his mom and his dad. And then he had a new, uh, I think it was a stepdad and mom. And they just said, look, we got to get out of here. We got to get away from what was happening to her, get away from what was happening to all of us. And so, yeah, he talks about coming from a really rough area of Chicago. Um, you know, lots of sirens and ambulances and police and gang violence. And, um, and they, packed up and moved to Rochester and just talks about the freedom of a kid being able to go outside and go play at a playground without fear of gang violence is, you know, you look at that and think, wow, that was, uh, you know, something that seems so simple to us. You can see how it made a world of difference to this guy and then end up getting this job with, with, uh, the, the Hilton and just loved it. I mean, this guy with a bachelor of science in rehab and human services. So gets to do um, some of that, but you know, just said he really likes his job and, and gets a chance to interact with these patients on a daily basis, which is really cool. Yeah. Uh, personal level. I ran into a family from another country visiting our community and what they couldn't stop talking about was everywhere they went, there were kids just running around, playing and having fun, <laughs> and people people just out walking everywhere at any time during the day. And that would not happen where they live because somebody would be abducted or somebody, some really horrible thing would happen to you or there'd be a really high risk of it happening to you. And we just take it for granted. Yeah, no, there are those moments all the time for me when... 
you know, as much as we sometimes complain about what's happening in Rochester or, you know, have our, our bones to pick and you hear someone else give an outsider's take, I'm always impressed with how, you know, Rochester seems to people on the outside. And, you know, I think we kind of lose sight of that sometimes. We do. That's for sure. You never know how good you have it until you don't have it, I guess. We have to take another break and uh, we'll be back just a little bit more. Chatting with Steve Lang, Rochester Magazine, here on News Talk 1340, KROC AM 96.9 FM. First, we decide where we want to go. Then... Today, Andy Brownell, it's News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. We're with Steve Lang from Rochester Magazine. Um, and your Oddchester column is about uh, driver's ed and having kids in driver's ed and... It's funny, I I didn't realize what a nerve-wracking experience that was for my parents until I had to go through it. And uh, I and I put my parents through H-E double toothpicks with my aggressive driving tactics as a 15-year-old. I still remember some of the biggest fights with my dad coming during me learning to drive a stick shift, right? I mean, there's just no question <laughs> that that was, and that was a real touchstone in her relationship of you know what in the hell and he was pretty you know, he, he was a pretty um aggressive guy teaching to drive so so yeah so this past year for me has been the last year of going through the driver's training stuff so the last year was our youngest kid daughter emma who just turned 16 a few weeks ago and I just realized how much better I have gotten or hope I've gotten at being a passenger in the driver's ed period than I was with my oldest daughter and even my son. That'll, um, we'll see how good a driver she becomes. She's been really, and she's gone on her own and done some stuff. And, you know, her and friends have gone to Cafe Steam and she's driving herself to dance class. So she's been really comfortable with it. But she realized you know, the youngest kids are always way better at manipulating you in a way you don't realize. And <laughs> Emma right away realized, okay, um, I'm we're going to take road trips, which I love. So she's like, we'd have a Saturday and we'd drive to some independent bookstore in Winona or Wabasha or Stillwater and get to go have some cool lunch, visit some bookstore, go to a candy store, whatever. So she made the trips fun. And then she came up with this plan that I didn't realize till later was probably keeping me from, you know, overbearingly talking nonstop during her driving. But she's like, hey, I'll set up Spotify so we can each pick a song that we listen to and we'll pick an era like the 80s and we'll just listen to 80s music <laughs> for two hours. I'm like, oh, my, this is awesome. I get to take a road trip to a bookstore and I get to listen to my, the music I want. So. Yeah, so you're, and you're thinking what a great parent I have been because yes. my, my kid likes the same music I like. I was texting. I literally, I have the text. I was texting a few buddies like, hey, losers, my daughter wants to drive around with me and take road trips and listen to <laughs> 80s music. And, you know, then I realized, okay, she probably realized herself that that was the way to make everything seem more fun and laid back and not have me, you know, nitpicking every bit of her driving, which I still try to do, but in a much more conversational and, you know, laid back way. But um, <laughs> I'd you know, like we spent to a lot of time that. at... Practicing parallel parking and reverse 90s in different, you know, setting up cones in the Cub parking lot or going to the, there's a couple places that have the plate, things already set up that you can kind of sneak in and practice at. But uh, no, she passed her driving test 
right uh, right after Christmas. It's the you know most nerve wracking fifteen or twenty minutes when you're waiting for them to get back to see whether they passed or not because obviously they don't all pass the first time. But uh, uh, Emma did, so no, it's been great, and it was uh, you know it's kind of one of those real eye openers for me to look back and see you know probably how hard I was on the first kid, how you know less hard I was on the second kid, and now with the third one, she's got it as good as it gets. Uh, we'll see. Uh, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see these kids ten years from now discussing your driver's ed technique. <laughs> yeah. And having the well, what do you mean, your dad let you listen to music the whole way to Lake City, and I had to be. He was on me constantly saying, "Break, break, break." That was exactly it. So Hadley obviously got the worst of it. Our oldest daughter, where it was, uh, you know, white knuckling it all day long for me, and then, you know, by Henry, you're realizing it's not the end of the world. If they make a few little mistakes, and by Emma, she was controlling where we were going and what we were listening to. And, um, but no, they all turned out to be good drivers, and and it's been a lot of fun. But you know, although I was going to say I won't miss giving the drivers training, but for me to get to spend nights, and the job really fell to me. I mean, my wife was uh, busy through a lot of this with a sick dad, that sort of thing. So Emma and I were spending a lot of time just driving around and. There was a few times where I was, you know, aware of how cool it was that I was going to drive around with my daughter and watch some cool, you know, cloud formations as we're driving back up Highway 63 or whatever from Lanesboro or somewhere, listening to 80s music and, you know, and, and, and just getting to spend the time together. There he is, Steve Lang, sentimental dad again. Yeah, yeah, I fell into that trap. You, <laughs> you dragged me into that trap. I remember uh, one of the, uh, I mean, this is a million years ago, but my mother insisting that I learn how to control a car on the ice and taking the car to an empty parking lot and rear-wheel drive car with a V8 and purposely putting it into a slide. And I put it into a far more wicked slide than she would ever <laughs> anticipate it just because I wanted to for the adrenaline. And uh, she was a little shook up by the end of that driver's license lesson. But I was able to control the car quite well. And honestly, that's one thing I think that's, you know, talk about uh, our generation was so much better. I spent <laughs> hours doing that for fun, right? That's what we do is go to a right. parking lot that was glare ice and just spin around for literally, we'd spend a night doing that. I mean, I must we... just tore up so many tires <laughs> on my, you know, old Delta 88 with a 354 barrel in it and rear wheel we lived on uh, on Lake Huron, and people would go on the ice and drive on the lake. And and in hindsight, I you know not to humble brag, but I'm a really <laughs> good driver on the ice because I spent a lot of time realizing what cars can and can't do in ways I probably shouldn't have. So right. um, I almost miss the rear wheel drive stuff now. I mean, the front wheel drive is no fun trying to spin the back end around. Yeah, that took my mom became very wary because she knew that. My philosophy with vehicles and engines and it was, you'll never know what I can do until you take it to the limit. Yeah. As a, not, probably not the most uh, wise thing to believe at any point in your life if you want to live for a while. But uh, as a 15-year-old, I prescribed to that foolish notion and, and she knew it. So she had to drive with me for driver's ed a lot. And it was, yeah. Like I say, I, I feel guilty to this day. 
we had to rock a car out. Someone got stuck in my family and they couldn't get it out. And I got in and I was, I rocked that thing out, you know, like a pro. And my daughter was like, wow, how'd you do that? I'm like, because we got stuck so many times. I got stuck so many times in such stupid ways as a kid that we had no option but to realize, you know, to put the, the front floor mats under the back tires and to spin them out of there. And so, you know, it was like, I shouldn't be proud of how good I am at this because I was just so bad to get there. Aren't you so lucky that you weren't allowed to do stupid things like we are? Or, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly right. We could uh, reminisce for a while, but we have to run. Uh, time to go. Thanks a lot, Steve. Great spending time with you and getting caught up. Yeah, same here. Good talking to you, Andy. All right. That's Steve Lang. Pick up the latest edition of Rochester Magazine. I'm Andy Brownell, News Talk 1340, KROC AM and 96.9 FM. There is nothing quite like Minnesota winter. Whether you want